Y'all can have a seat. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can go with me to Proverbs chapter 3. Uh, this is first time with us. My name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor of Anchor Church, and right now we're working our way through Proverbs, starting in chapter 1 all the way to chapter 9. Uh, I will go ahead and pray for us, and we will dig in. Uh, our Father, this is your day, and we are your people. We just pray now, Lord, uh, that we would know you more, that we would love Jesus Christ more because of today, uh, that we would open your word and hear from you, <clears throat> and Jesus, that we would love you and love others more as a result of our time together, that we as your church would live in the reality that there's nothing we can do to earn your love, but that Jesus, you came to save us from ourselves and to set us free to live in the freedom and the power of the gospel. Fill us with your Holy Spirit today. Lead us and guide us. Lead me. I'm just a man. Whatever I have to say that's just of me, let's just blow it away in the wind. But the things that are of you, Lord, would that set in our hearts? Would you light us up for a white-hot passion for you, Jesus? Um, would you light us up, not just on Sunday when we're singing songs or opening up the Word, but when we're at work, when we're at school, when we're with our kids, when we're with our friends, when we're with our neighbors, uh, Lord, that we would enjoy you and worship you and glorify you, and that we would love you and love others. Jesus, we need you and ask these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so we are in Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table uh, over there. Uh, today we're looking at the reality of what it means to live out Proverbs uh, as something that's a response rather than rules. And what I mean by that is not that the Bible doesn't have some rules for us and ways for us to live, uh, but the, the, the core of Proverbs is that Proverbs is not the Tao Te Ching. Uh, it is not a, a set of principles that we just implement, but an understanding of who God is, the world that he's made, and how we live in the reality of who God is and in response to who he is. Now, for us as Christians, this really shouldn't be a surprise because this is fundamentally the foundation of the Christian religion, the Christian faith. Why is that? Because all Christian life comes down to this, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We in our depravity, in our sin, in our alienation from God, are saved by God, not because we've followed some principles or implemented some rules, but that God himself came on the great rescue mission to save me and you, if you're a Christian, from yourself, not because of anything you've done, but everything that he's done. You can't get to God. God had to come down and get to you. You can't live the life you're supposed to live. Jesus had to come and live that life. You can't live a life without sin. Jesus came and paid the price for your sin, whether it's the good things you do for selfish reasons or the wrong things, the wiling out you've done, the partying or the uh, sort of religion and sins, the, the putting on your Sunday best and thinking that those are the things that make you a good person in the world. He paid the price for all of those. You couldn't pay them. He had to pay them. He's done them. And Jesus Christ is the one who makes you right with God now and forever, period. This is the gospel. This is what he's done, not what we've done to earn it. Now then what do we do with the rest of our life? If Jesus did everything, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. If he did that, then what do I do with the rest of my life? I live in response to who he is and what he's done, which of course he's laid out for us. That is our life. This is salvation and sanctification. Salvation is when Jesus saves me from myself to life in him. And then I live the rest of my life being changed and responding to the reality of who he is, being changed by God and his Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus every day. It's called sanctification, or the process of being made holy. Now we're in Proverbs. 
What does that have to do with Proverbs? This is an Old Testament book written by Solomon. Here's what it has to do with Proverbs. Proverbs is not just a set of rules or ideas, but coming to grips what reality is, what the world is, and living in response to that, and really, in many ways, growing into the wisdom is, is, is akin to sanctification. Sanctification, I'm growing into the understanding and reality of who Jesus is, who I am because of who he is, which is basically what Proverbs is asking us to do with wisdom. Wisdom is rooted in understanding who God is, how he made the world, and how we are to operate in that. And as New Testament Christians, we have that so revealed to us in the person of Jesus and the reality of his gospel. And we want to be clear and careful to preach Old Testament scriptures as Christian scriptures. So here we are in verse 3. We're going to do three things. One sermon, three acts, because it's three separate paragraphs, three big ideas. Um, So as we live in response to this, where do we get wisdom? We've been talking about wisdom for weeks. We're going to talk about wisdom till Easter. Uh, wisdom is not just some ideas. It's not just some uh, Viking proverbs. Uh, you know, never go in an open field without your sword in daytime. That's not a proverb. Well, it is a proverb, but that's not one of these proverbs, right? That's not one of these proverbs. These proverbs are about how reality is and how it works. And so wisdom is an understanding of who God is. And so in this idea of wisdom, where do we get wisdom? Number two, why is wisdom so great? I'm going to argue that it's really awesome. And then three, what does it look like? What does it actually look like to respond and live it out? So here we go. My job is easy today. Verse 13. Blessed. Okay, there's my answer to the first act. Uh, where do we get wisdom? Blessed. And I'll tell you why. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Okay, this word blessed is the Hebrew word ashrei, which is a very special little word. Uh, it's the same word that appears in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man or happy is the man. This is a psalm that talks about not walking in the way of sinners and scoffers and and walking with the nasty people, but walking close to and with God. Okay, that word blessed means from God to you. When this word, but now this, here's the tricky part. There's like three or four ways to say blessed in Hebrew. And so don't just assume every time you read blessed in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, whichever you want to call it, don't always assume that it's from God to man because there's times when people bless the Lord. They're, they're worshiping God. But in this case, it's from God to human beings. And so where does wisdom come from? From God to us. Where does the framework for understanding reality from God to us, for understanding who God is in the world, comes from God to us because by myself, I don't figure it out. By myself, I don't get it. But God, in his grace and mercy, reveals himself to us, and he does that so clearly in the person of Jesus. So blessed is he who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her, that's a her, uh, Proverbs, we've looked, seen this already, but we'll see it again. This is the concept of what, is, what, what has been called lady wisdom. Uh, wisdom is personified as a literary device. It's not the uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit and Lady Wisdom, it's, it's just a literary device that, that's being used when you see this idea of her um, wisdom's personified. Okay, now where am I? Uh, for gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. Have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? You should. Uh, not just I say you should, or you should read your whole Bible, but Ecclesiastes is amazing. Uh, it's the most depressing book in, it's the, it's, the, uh, it's the most depressing book in the Bible, maybe next to Lamentations. Uh, and Solomon, uh, who was the richest, wealthiest cat in the world, reflects back on his life and everything he's accomplished, and he looks back and he says, it's wasted. 
So, and, and his whole point is that you can't outdo his party. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you ever read Ecclesiastes, when you read Ecclesiastes, remember the point of Ecclesiastes is you cannot out-party Solomon. So Solomon has money, he has fame, he has musicians, he has land, he has works, he has it all. And here's the thing, I don't know if you've caught up on what Michael Jordan, if maybe I'm old and you don't know who Michael Jordan is anymore, but I think he's big enough that we do remember. You know, you look on this guy's life now and he's got it all, right? He's, he's got records and, you know, basketball records, not, he may have rapped, I don't know, he may have done folk music, I don't know if he did folk music, I don't know what he did, um, but he's got these huge records, right? Uh, uh, and in addition to that, he owns a basketball team, or at least he did the last time I checked, and, and there was an article done on him last year, and he is the most depressed cat in the world. He's bummed out because guess what? He's getting old, and guess what Solomon says? So are you. You, are get, you might not feel old right now, but you're getting old every day. You get a little bit older. And it turns out when you're chasing money, when you're chasing success, when you're chasing fame, these things have a, a, a point at which there's no return. You get there, and you're as famous as you possibly can be, and there's nothing there. You can have more money than anybody else, and there's nothing there because it's all dust in the wind. Thank you, Kansas. It is blowing in the wind. It won't last, and it won't make you happy. Why? Money doesn't make you happy because it turns out you're like, I have the biggest bass boat in the world. I need to put more funds to making a bigger bass boat, and it turns out I'm still empty. Money won't do it. Fame won't do it. Success won't do it because there's always going to be someone richer, better, faster, and smarter than you. I don't know if you know that, but that's reality. There's always, there's always going to be someone who's better at it than you are. There's always someone who's going to have more than what you've got. And ultimately, those things still come up empty. You might have the biggest bass boat in the world, right? You might have the biggest bass boat record in the world. And half the room says, what's a bass boat? I use random illustrations so you don't feel particularly called out when you're like, well, how do you know I was going after the ping pong championship of the world? I don't. If that's you, you need to talk to Jesus about it, not me. But the reality is that this is the way the world is. These are created things. They're not, you are not built for these things to be the things that bring you joy and satisfaction. The Lord of the universe, in all his beauty and all his wonder and all his glory is the only thing that when you enjoy him, it does not run out. Now, if wisdom is growing in an understanding of him, wisdom and understanding and insight will grow you in your joy for Jesus because you know him and you love him better because the reality is the more you know Jesus, the more joy there will be in your life, period. The more you understand how forgiven by the God of the universe at the depths of your sin, forgiven, wiped out, and washed clean, you did nothing to earn it, and he did everything, the more joy there is. The more freedom there is. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. The point of walking with Jesus is life and freedom forever, by the way. Freedom to what? To enjoy God who made you. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have money or a bass boat or, you know, be a skateboarding champion or the ping pong champion of the world. We just understand that that thing is not the point. 
Those things you can use to glorify and enjoy him because you understand every ping-pong skill you have in the world comes as a gift from him. It's all a gift from him. Everything you have is a gift from him meant for you to enjoy him more. You are created for joy. So get wisdom. Get this framework. Get this insight. Get this understanding. For gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit is better than gold. Gold only profits you so far. Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite lines. It is better to be a living dog than a dead lion. It is better to be Andrew Pack in Seattle with a silly sweater and a minivan than it's better to be, oh, I don't know, Carnegie. He's not alive anymore, right? He had lots of cash and built lots of libraries. Great, but I'm still breathing. Good for me. Better be a living dog than a dead lion. Long life is in her right hand. Again, talking about wisdom. In her left hand are riches and honor. Now remember, this is a proverb. Proverbs are generalizations oftentimes. If you are wise, if you make your aim to know Jesus, will that guarantee you a long life in the suburbs with two cars and a horse and some dogs or something? Nope. Because wisdom may lead you to do dangerous things for the gospel, and it may actually cost your life. But the thing you get out of the cost of discipleship is Jesus. Right? So it's a generalization. Why is it a generalization? Because it turns out when you know Jesus and follow him, you also stop doing stupid stuff. I spent most of my life before I met Jesus doing stupid stuff. I'll just say it bluntly. That was reality. I met Jesus, and I understood all of a sudden there's way more to live for than whatever I was after. Her ways, her ways are ways of pleasantness, and her paths are peace. Again, this is the word shalom. We see this a few times in Proverbs. We talked about it last week, but briefly, it is not the absence of hostility like we think of peace often. It's not a ceasefire. It's wholeness. It's the wholeness com- that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not that just that Jesus Christ pays the price for your sins, but that Jesus Christ makes you a whole person and gives you life. Verse 18. This is fascinating. Verse 18, she is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Why is that fascinating? The tree of life, this is what we understand, is in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve are. This is the thing that gives them life and even allows them to live forever without sin. It's the thing that they get shut off from when they rebel against God and God causes uh, God curses the ground and causes the ground to rebel against them the way they rebelled against God, and they are cut off from access to the tree of life. Where else does the tree of life appear? Proverbs, four times. So it's Genesis, Proverbs, four times, and then the book of Revelation. And that's it. That's it. It's a a central big idea in the Bible, but these are the, the four clear occurrences where the phrase tree of life appears. Now, in all the the proverbial occurrences, it's all about this kind of idea of shalom, having the full life that comes from knowing who God is. And I think when we follow what's called biblical theology, when we follow this whole whole string through the history of the Bible, so we have uh, Genesis and then through Proverbs and then ultimately into the book of Revelation, we understand that that tree of life comes to whom? Those who love Jesus. Those who know Jesus. Real life, real peace, life eternal, comes from Jesus who saves us from ourselves and gives us life in him. 
Where do we get wisdom? We get it from God. Okay, next. Why is wisdom so great? Verse 19. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. So, God existed before everything. Period. This is the amazing thing about the Trinitarian God of the Bible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Only God who didn't need to create to express who he was because he could express who he was in the divine persons of the Trinity in his wholeness before creation. Uh, he didn't need to create to love. He didn't need to create to, to glorify himself. He didn't need to create to do anything. Why is that important? Because sometimes people teach something that basically says, well, God created because he was lonely, and you are the answer to his loneliness. That's kind of weird. If I'm the answer to God's loneliness, we got a problem. Let's just stop there. we got a problem. If this guy is the answer to God's loneliness, we've got a problem. And it wasn't. It was grace. See grace throughout the Bible. Grace is a gift. He didn't have to create. He created. Now, he created us to enjoy him and glorify him and point to him, but he just created, right? Now, what happens here? It says this. How he created. Wisdom. With wisdom he founded the earth and understanding he established the heavens. So this is what's called amirism. Heavens and earth, when you see heavens and earth used together, it means everything. It's a Hebrew literary device. So when he created everything, because he made everything, right? Genesis 1, you can look at it when you go home, is there, he made everything. Which means that God had what when he created? He already had understanding. He already had knowledge. What does that mean? That means that knowledge and wisdom are not constructs made by human beings, but part of God's character from before he created Whenever you see something like this, whenever you see something where it talks about something God is doing or what God was like before anything was made, you need to stop and breathe and look at the context because whatever's happening there is happening, fancy Latin word, ex nil, without anything, before anything, with nothing, right? Before anything happened, he's there. He creates out of nothing, ex nilo. So that means what? Right? Wisdom. And understanding are God's before creation. Now check this out. Verse 20 is one of the most fascinating verses with Hebrew syntax, which I will spare you on. I don't know if you know this. I do you guys a favor. Uh, when the sound check people, Nick today, sound checked me, I tell him all the nerdy grammar and syntax that I learned during the week so that I don't have to tell them to you. I get it out of my system at about 9.55, but what's really important to see here, and uh, it hit me like a ton of bricks last night as I was getting ready to preach. Uh, in verse 19, we have two, there's only two ways to say something, only two forms that a verb can appear in uh, in Hebrew. Now, in English, we've got five. We've got the infinitive, the present tense, the past tense, the present tense participle, and the past tense participle, right? That's how we can say things. In Hebrew, they've only got two. They've got the perfect and the imperfect. Well, I guess they've got the infinitive. Now I'm getting technical, and now I'm taking myself down the rabbit trail I tried to avoid at 9.55. So I will get back on the track and stay right here. What's really, 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 really clear from the syntax is one of the verbs we're about to look at is past tense in English. 
And the other one is present tense in English. That means it happened before and it's happening now. So here we are in uh, 20, as I restrain myself. Uh, by his knowledge, the depths broke open. So this is a clear reference to Genesis 1. God made everything. And nothing was made that he didn't make. Right? First John tries to get really clear on it and just uses a, a bunch of very simple uh, uh, words because you kind of run out of words when you try and say, God made everything, everything but God got made by God. God made everything, he made everything, and everything he made. Okay, past tense, but hear this. And the clouds dropped down the dew. Present tense. What's Solomon, who wrote this section of Proverbs, he didn't write all of Proverbs, but he did write this section, what's he trying to say? God made everything, and everything that's happening right now is under his sovereign control. Not only did he, he's not a deist God, if you've heard of deists, he's not, he didn't build the clock, set the clock, and walk away. He made everything, and he controls everything as he is doing it, as he is doing it. Sovereign over everything. Okay, so why is wisdom so great then? So here's, here's the disclaimer. And here's where we have to be extra careful with Proverbs. There's two ditches we can fall in in Proverbs, and I don't like falling in ditches. Um, they're gross. They've got weeds. They've got leeches. Your shoes are wet. Um, but on one ditch, we have moralism. And this is probably the big, the big giant, scary ditch. One of those big L.A., lakes, if you ever, or not lakes, the big rivers in LA that are just like concrete that run through the city. Uh, they're really scary and big, and they're in Terminator 2, and you're like, oh, how's the kid going to get out of that thing? Uh, it just turns out I'd never seen LA before, and you're like, whoa, okay, it's the city of the future. Uh, the big giant ditch is this, moralism. I can get up here and say to you, you all need to get wisdom, because we only have that for our second person uh, plural in English, y'all. Y'all need to get some wisdom. So you get out there and get after wisdom. It said so. It said, blesses the man who gets wisdom. So you guys go get some wisdom right now. You work harder and you try harder and you get wisdom. And this is what it looks like to get wisdom. And now you go and do it. And you leave saying, well, what about Jesus? Where does wisdom, how do I, where's the gospel? Right? There's a bunch of things in here in Proverbs. If we're not careful and take out of context, it just becomes a list of things that you need to do. And that list of things that you need to do becomes the list of things that you need to do to be right with God. It becomes a list of things you need to do to be a, maybe a mature Christian. It becomes a list of things that you need to do so you can be right in maybe even our community. That's a big, scary ditch, and I'm trying to carefully stay out of it. Now, here's the other ditch, and I'll be totally honest. This is a ditch. It's an exegetical fallacy. I'm careful not to go into it, but I would rather be in this ditch than that ditch. The other ditch is because we are a gospel-centered church that believes Jesus in Luke 24 when he says the whole Bible is about him, uh, including all of the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus all the time because from 24 back, it's about Jesus. It's why Paul says um, in uh, 2 Timothy, he's going to tell Timothy, all of the scriptures are useful. It's why when Peter, in 2 Peter, referring to Paul's letter, says they are very difficult and hard to understand which you, I don't know if you know this, but if you've read Romans 7, 8, or 8, or 9 lately, thank you, Peter, for telling me that because it makes me not feel so bad. Yes, they are hard to understand sometimes. Thanks, Pete. But then what does he say? Like the other scriptures, which he's clearly referring to the rest of the Bible. Then. Okay, so here's the deal. We don't want to shoehorn Jesus into this. 
We don't want to say, and here's the gospel just because. We do want to connect the dots. There are dots here with wisdom. There's dots between, in the Old Testament, it tends to say knowing God. In the New Testament, it tends to talk about faith in God. They mean the same thing. Um, so here I will carefully try not to fall in that ditch. So three things I want to see out of these two verses. Wisdom is God's, period. Why? It's his. It was before anything was made. So he made it with wisdom. He made it with knowledge. He made it with understanding, which means wisdom, knowledge, and understanding are his. And that makes it great. If it belongs to God, it's good. It's great. It's mighty. This is also why he's the one that we get it from. This is why in James he's going to say, you who lack wisdom, pray for it and God will give it to you. Why? Because God's the one who gives wisdom. Now you can go to the bookstore and buy, you know, Klingon Proverbs or whatever, and there may be a couple handy things in there, maybe. That's, you can buy weird stuff at Barnes & Noble, right? You can see some handy things in Viking Proverbs, I guess. But what these Proverbs, the Masal, the Hebrew Proverbs are trying to do is found us in this understanding and wisdom that comes from God and understanding who he is and how his world works. Not only that, but everything exists because of his wisdom, as we saw here. In addition to that, I mean, I, I don't think we can miss this, the, the greatest wisdom, and I'm watching the shoehorn here. This God who did all of these things, this God who has wisdom is the same God who revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the thing that John 1 is trying to get across to us. There's not a slide for it, but John 1, 1 says this. If you've read Genesis, hear how it sounds like Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God made the world, and he made it good. We broke it. Human beings broke it. We break our own lives. We're pretty good at breaking stuff. I'm pretty good at breaking stuff. And the reality of the gospel is that God made everything good. We broke it, and he sent his son, the second member of the Trinity, God himself, the one who made everything good. I mean, get that. The one who did this thing we just looked at in Proverbs, the one who did all that that was made good, the one who looks at what we did and we broke it, and he doesn't just pick us up and put us in the garbage can. He makes a plan to restore it and you and all of creation and comes to save us from ourselves and ultimately put the world back the way it's supposed to be, wiping every tear from every eye, uh, the lion laying down with the lamb, wiping out the violence and nastiness and gnarliness of the world, and it's his action and his act, and it's Jesus Christ who does it. So for all time, we can point to Jesus and say, that is Jesus, and Jesus is amazing for eternity anyway. So this God who's done these things we saw in Proverbs not only reveals himself, but for us as New Testament believers, as Christians, he's revealed himself to us clearly. So what does wisdom look like then if we're talking about response, right? Because honestly, like we can kind of come to this and be like, all right, let's sing. Let's do it. Let's bring out the band. Jesus is awesome. Let's go. 
What is that sanctification piece? What is that response piece? What does it look like to actually live then in this reality? If this is reality, Jesus saved sinners from death to life, how do we actually live in that reality? Here we go. Verse 28. Nope, pardon me. Verse 21. My son, again, here's our discipleship literary device, a father to his son. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom. Hang on to the understanding of what the world is and how it works. And discretion. Another really handy way that they could have translated the word discretion is purpose. Purpose. Hang on to your purpose, son. So hang on to an understanding of what? Well, as Christians, I'm going to go ahead and say, not just of Proverbs, and not just that God made everything. God made everything good, and he sent his son to fix it, and this, all these things we've been talking about. So hang on to this framework and reality of Jesus. Right? And then our purpose. If he's done that, then what's the purpose of our lives? What's the point of our life? Our purpose and point is to glorify him by enjoying him. Your purpose and point is to live in the wake of the reality of who he is and spend the rest of your life pointing to how awesome he is. Enjoying him by loving him and loving others. Now, if we lose the purpose or we lose the point, we lose everything, and I'll show you why. I'll prove it to you. You can say pithy things like that, but then it's my job to actually, from the text, show you that it's actually there. Okay, here we go. So keep that idea. The wisdom or the point and discretion or the purpose. And he says this, if we remember who we are, who he is, and how we're to operate in the world, and they will be life for your soul. The gospel of Jesus Christ is life for your soul. You leave here, you feel pious, you feel religious, you feel like you've done your task and service, and someone cuts you off in the parking lot and you flash them the universal sign of disapproval. And your child asks what that means. And you don't feel very holy or pious. So you need to wait at the stop sign and make sure everybody can cross now. So you atone <laughs> for your malfeasance. Put your good works and your bad works on the scale, and you say, Well, I'm a Christian, so I don't do this, or I don't do that, or I should do this, or I should do that. You know what you should do? You should enjoy Jesus forever. Yeah, you should obey Him, but why do we obey Him? It comes back to the why you should obey Him. It's not that you should obey Him so that the points at the end of the game have your favor as good Christian rather than bad Christian. You should obey him because he loves you. You should obey him because he saved you. You should obey him because he actually has the wisdom for how the world works best. Because we trust him and we know him and we know that Jesus is saying to us again and again and again, don't run into the street. And we keep saying, but the street looks like so much fun, Jesus. I'm just going to run right out into traffic. Again and again and again with our selfishness, with our self-centeredness, with our greed, with whatever it might be. And yet we learn, man, when I run out in the street, I'm running away from Jesus. That what I get is the reality that, that there's nothing in the Bible that's just going to say, don't do this because God doesn't want you to do it because it bugs him. 
everything God instructs you not to do is instructing us to turn from sin and from death to life and Jesus and glory and joy. And yes, as Christians, I want to be over here with Jesus. But again, this kind of repentance is radically different than I'm trying to be a good person or I'm trying to be accepted in my community of faith or I'm trying to prove the world that the gospel's true. You know how I prove the gospel's true? I live as a sinner saved by grace, which means sometimes I say, hey, that thing I just did, that was messed up. Please forgive me. That's what it means. Yeah, it, it is about holiness, but holiness is also about repentance. And so with this point and this purpose, here we go. And there will be life to your soul and an adornment around your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. Does that mean you're never going to trip and fall? Nope. Does that mean your life's never going to be in danger for following Jesus? That people might not like you for saying you believe the Bible or you believe Jesus. It's not saying that. When you understand the point and the purpose of your life, though, you understand that God has it that the sovereign God of the universe has you in his hand. And so even when you're putting one foot forward into trouble or to danger, you know you're safe. God's got you. Then walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. Why? The point of your life is you remember the purpose, the wisdom, you understand the framework for everything. Who is control of your sleep? Jesus, who is watching you when you're in REM sleep and having a bad dream? Jesus, who, who's there for you when you, I mean, I mean, you got to realize that God has built your body in an amazing and wonderful way. You go to sleep, who tells your lungs to breathe? He's built your body to do it, right? Who, who's watching out after you while your eyes are closed? The sovereign God of the universe. And whatever happens when your eyes are closed, his will be done. That's why you're not afraid. When you lie down, when you sleep, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good. Okay, so again, this isn't love Jesus. We've got a nice... Uh, station wagon outside for you, and uh, we'll sign your kids up for soccer lessons. All those things are fine, by the way. When I became, when I, when I was not a Christian in high school, I saw all these people that I thought had these really nice lives. Oh, that's why they're Christians. They have these nice lives. They're, they're in soccer class, and their moms have Volvos and snacks in the cupboard or whatever. I don't know. Whatever I thought it was. But I thought that their lives were cleaned up. And, when I, and when, as I got to actually know some of these people over time, I realized these are people who are just following Jesus. And I'm ascribing the wrong things to Christ here. It's not become a Christian and he'll clean your life up and you'll be middle class. It's follow Jesus and get him and life in him forever. There's a big difference. And guess what? You might follow Jesus and no one sends you a check for $10,000 tomorrow. Right? It's certainly not health and wealth. You send me a check and I'll send you some snake oil and you will be healed if you love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you will be healthy and wealthy. Unless you follow Jesus in a lesser developed nation, 
unless you follow Jesus when Christianity is not popular wherever you live, unless you follow Jesus where people are coming specifically after Christians, then you won't be healthy and wealthy, and we don't really have a theology to deal with that, so you should probably pray more and have more faith. Right? It's not what it's saying. It's saying that when the waves are crashing and the storm is coming, you will have Jesus. You'll be built on the foundation that is Jesus, that when you have Jesus, you have everything regardless of the situation. Okay, 27. Now here's our response. This is, that's sort of framework, and now we're getting to actual actions of response. Do not, hold good, uh, do not withhold good from those whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. But what does that have to do with anything we were just talking about? Should have just cut it off right there and bring the band out, right? This is about that understanding, that wisdom of how the world is, and then how we respond to it. So what he's saying here, and see all these is this. You say to somebody who needs, who's desperate, cupboards are empty, you have the resources to take care of their food needs, but you say, why don't you just come back tomorrow? Not because you couldn't take care of them, not because you couldn't give them funds, just because you want to be in control. Just because you want to seem powerful. Or maybe just because you want to make sure people see you give them the stuff. Maybe you want to make a show of it. Just do it. Why? Because God's taking care of you. He takes care of you all the time. Take care of them. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly. Oh, pardon me. 28. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Oh, yeah, I did read that. 29. Do not. No, I didn't. There it is. 28. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it. With me when I have it. I do read it. Sorry. 29. Do not play any evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Don't take advantage of the fact that they trust you and think you're a kind person to do nasty things to them. Why? Because God loves you, and because God loves you, we respond to the love of God by loving others and being trustworthy and true. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose his ways. Why is that? You look at someone of violence, you say, well, yeah, he's stepped on everybody. He's ruined everything for everybody. He's, he's taken uh, from the poor, and he's given to the rich. But, man, he has a lot of stuff, and I really like his pool. His pool is awesome. His pool is bought with blood money. When we look at that, we say, well, you know, I could follow Jesus and not get a pool, or I could do what that guy's doing, and I could get a pool out of the deal. Hmm, I really want a pool. Well, when you really want a pool, pool is God for you, a pool is God for you, and that's the thing you're after, not Jesus. Again, we respond to the reality of Jesus, not what we're seeing in the world. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, because it's way better to be broke and in a shack and loved by the God of the universe and rebelling against him with your pool, even if it's got a little umbrella in your drink. But the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. He blesses the dwelling of the righteous. We don't see things how God sees things. One of the great themes of the book of Psalms is the righteous will be vindicated and the nastiness of our world will be dealt with. And so we walk in that reality. We don't do street justice. You took from me, I'll take from you. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. We don't do that. What do we do? We turn the other cheek. Why? Why? Because we can forgive as Jesus has forgiven us. 
Because no matter what someone does to you, when you understand who God is and what you've done to him in your life, you understand whatever they're doing to you pales in comparison and allows you to forgive them. Now, that doesn't mean to say that if they sock you in the face, you invite them in your house. I'm just saying you can forgive them and you don't necessarily need to sock them right back. Toward the scorners, he is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. This is also this word to be translated grace. To those who mock God, they will be mocked by God. But to those who are humble, he shows grace. What does humility before God look like? Jesus, I need you. Save me. Forgive me. Empower me. Sanctify me. Change me. My life is in your hands. You're God and I'm not. That's humility. Being scornful. This is a less. It's also the mocker. A hard-hearted person is what this. This is a tricky word to translate in one word, but the scorner is a hard-hearted person. The hard-hearted person says, I can figure it out on my own. I can get myself out of the mess. I don't need God or anybody for anything. It won't go well for that person. But for the person who goes to God and says, I need you. Help me. Forgive me. Love me. Save me. Well, that person gets grace. That person gets mercy. That person gets favor all day long. The wise will inherit honor, but the fools will get grace. That honor is, I think, being blessed by God knowing God. That is the most honorable, wonderful thing that can happen in your life is when you know Jesus. The fools get grace. This word is actually the word exalted, which is a little tricky because we don't have this concept of being exalted in our disgrace or exalted in our dishonor. But it will, again, the righteous will be vindicated and these things will be brought to light. Okay. So how do we respond? Then we live our whole life then in the wake of who Jesus is with our aim to glorify him, to enjoy him, to live the life he's given us and to live for his glory. That's the deal. Now, when we don't believe this, when we don't believe this, this framework and this response, we seek a different framework. We seek a different understanding. We seek our joint enjoyment fundamentally from somewhere other than Jesus. We seek to glory in something fundamentally different than Jesus. Something else takes center stage in our life. That's Solomon's great warning for us. Yes, you've got the big house. Yes, you have all the money. And you have no Jesus. Jesus says this in the Gospels to the man who had some barns and he had lots of stuff. So he tore down his barns and he built bigger ones for more stuff. And what does he say? Fool. It's the opposite of wisdom. Tonight your life is required of you, and then who will all these things be? One of Solomon's great refrains. Someday you will die, and somebody you don't even want to have your stuff is going to have all your stuff. Someone who didn't work for your stuff is going to have your stuff. Someone who's going to do something you didn't want. They're going to take your nice, uh, minor threat, perfect vinyl, and then they're going to scratch it because it seems like fun on their Fisher-Price little thing they got at Value Village, and it's ruined, but you're dead, so it doesn't matter. Fill in the blank. Whatever that thing is. You're going to drive your truck horribly, your car horribly. You're going to do something with your skateboard. I don't know. But it's, it's wasted is the deal. We seek our wisdom. We seek our purpose from something else. And this is easy to do because you can even have a purpose that seems good but is really just religious. Well, my purpose is I want everybody to know I'm the 
the most philanthropic, kind, loving, gracious person in the world. So they throw me in a parade and tell me I'm awesome. You're at the center of that purpose, not Jesus. You're at that. Now, however, when we believe that the point and the purpose is to glorify Jesus and to live in the wake of his gospel, that changes everything, reframes everything, and puts everything back where it's supposed to be. Because all those other options lead to death. The Proverbs really set for us something fairly binary. There's a way that leads to corruption and foolishness and death. And there's a place that leads just to enjoyment and understanding and wisdom and safety and security, which isn't a big surprise because that is the theme of the Bible. That is one of the themes of the Bible. That is the thing we see in the gospel. Jesus saved sinners from death to life. The wages of sin are death, but all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All who come to Jesus will be forgiven, period. And not only that, if you love God, He's not built you to live after the world stuff. He's lived, built you to live in that framework and for His joy. And so if you don't know Jesus, today is the day. The gospel is not do right things so God will love you and we know the right things for you to do. The gospel is that you and I have done wrong things. Be saved, loved, and forgiven by Jesus Christ who will save you from yourself. You cannot earn it. You cannot keep it. It is his action both to save you and to keep you and to make you whole and right in the world. Turn from your sin and turn to him. And if you're a Christian, again and again, we just got to keep asking this question in Proverbs. Am I living in the wake of the understanding of who God is and how he's made the world and how his world works? Or am I living in the wake of how the world understands the world was made and the world understands the world works? And am I living in the world's ways or in God's ways? Am I living a survival of the fittest lifestyle or, or, or I'll take cuts to the back of the lines that I might love God and love others' lifestyles? Let's pray. Lord, I want to live for your glory. I want to have joy. I want to enjoy you with everything I've got. I want to love people better. And all this is a response, Lord. I can't do it unless I see who you are clearly. I pray you'd help me to respond to the reality of the forgiveness you've extended me, the grace and mercy you've given me, the life you've given me in your son. Jesus, I need you. We need you. Help us to see who you are and to live in response to it. Love you, Jesus. Amen.